0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to uh, the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 in particular. Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. So I'm going to do more teaching this morning than I am going to do preaching because I need to sit down. Amen. Amen. I'm going to reserve my voice and my toe this morning. All right. Philippians chapter four. When you got it, say amen. Amen. Verses 10 through 20. Can we read together collectively and loud in unison? Fellas, can I put some put you put some bass in your voice and let's make it sound real good. All right. Ready. Read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning, God. We know that you are awesome, amazing, wonderful, beautiful Savior. And so this morning, God, I pray that as we've gathered. For Sunday morning worship, God, I pray that you would speak to us, God. I pray that you would honor um, our journey to get here this morning, God, to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray um, ultimately that Christ would be central this morning, that Jesus would be exalted this morning, God, that we would have a new view of God and who He is and what He has done for us through His Son Jesus. Um, my prayer this morning, God, is that you would bless the hearers and the doers of your word this morning, God. Let it speak to our hearts. Let it speak to our minds. Let us be transformed by it, God. Let us be convicted to action, God. Let us be encouraged to trust in you, Lord. And so, Father, I just thank you this morning that we even have an opportunity to worship in freedom, God. And so, Lord, I just thank you, and I pray for every person that is here that we all have different needs. We all Came from different backgrounds. We all have different dispositions. Our journey to get here has been different, but you are the same God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every issue, that you would speak to every need. I pray, God, that you would um, that you would talk to us in such a way, God, that we will be radically transformed from the inside out. And so, we thank you for it. Now, it's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, "Amen." You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is money and mission. Money and mission. This morning, I want to bring your attention to a gentleman by the name of Sam Houston. Sam Houston is the only person to be elected governor of two different states. At different times, he served as the sixth governor of the state of Texas and the seventh governor of Tennessee. He is the only politician to serve the governor of both, of two separate states in U.S. history. Sam Houston was a notable, not just politician, but he was also a notable American soldier. When Texas went to war with Mexico to fight for its independence, Sam Houston was the top-ranking official in what they call the Texian Army. He, He led Texas to victory against Mexico in their war for independence, which they eventually won and became part of the United States. Sam Houston served as the first and third president of what was called then the Republic of Texas, when Texas was just a sovereign state in the 1800s. Sam Houston was such a figure in the state of Texas that the largest city in the state of Texas is named in his honor. Personally, though, Sam Houston was known as a drunkard. He was a baller. He was a very belligerent and aggressive man. At one point, he beat a fellow senator almost to death with a cane because they had a verbal disagreement. He was a belligerent man. He was a a violent man, but he was a successful politician and a successful soldier. But however, later in his life, His wife, Margaret, who was a devout Christian, had been praying for Sam for several years. She had been praying for her husband to meet the Lord. She was praying, and then he met another gentleman by the name of George W. Baines. George W. Baines just actually happened to be the great-grandfather of eventual U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson. Well, George Baines eventually led Sam Houston to the Lord. And so after he got saved and was led to the Lord, Sam Houston decided to get baptized. Well, because of who Sam Houston was and because of his bad reputation, people took the approach that they had to see it in order to believe it, that a man like Sam Houston would actually become religious and make a decision to get baptized. So once the date was said and the time of Sam Houston's baptism was announced, people from everywhere came to witness this event. Well, once Sam was baptized in a moment of humor while standing in the water, he said to the man that was baptizing him, what what just happened? And the man said, well, you've been forgiven and all of your sins have been washed away. And being funny, Sam knowing his life, Sam said this, if that be the case, God help all those fish in the water. How do you know? when a man has such a a reputation, has been truly changed and converted. I mean, people had to see this, but I I tend to believe that because of his reputation, even though the people saw him get baptized in the water, they still had to see something evident to believe that a man like him could be radically transformed and changed. And so here's what happened. When someone asked him about what happened to him with his baptism, He uh, said that, that everything about me got baptized. Sam really embraced this idea of Christianity and the mission of Christ. He embraced all of it. And so what he decided to do at one point was he decided to pay half of the salary of a local minister. He decided to pay half the salary of a local minister of a local church. And so when someone asked him why he would do such a thing like personally take his own resources and pay half of a minister's salary, Sam had this reply. He said this, when I got baptized, my pocketbook got baptized, too. And So giving sacrificially is a good sign of someone that has been truly converted. And that is exactly what we see in today's passage. A church that has truly been converted and it's on full display through their willingness not to separate ministry from money. And so in Paul's warmest and joyous letter, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi for a couple reasons. Number one, he's writing to them to let them know that he is at the present moment sitting in a Roman prison. Secondly, he's writing to them to address this issue of unity in the church because two women who were influential in the church got into a little spat, and so he wanted to write a letter for them to get their stuff together and act in unity. And so thirdly, Paul, in one of his warmest letters, Is writing to thank this church for their support that they've shown to him throughout the course of his ministry. And this whole theme, this whole tone of this letter is one of joy. It's Paul's warmest letter. He keeps talking to them about having this this idea of joy. Now, for us, it would seem strange to the common person that a man that is sitting in prison would write to someone that is free about experiencing joy. You're probably thinking Paul has lost his mind in prison. He's been in there far too long. Paul is not crazy. Paul has not lost his mind. Paul has not developed some sort of schizophrenia because he's in prison. Paul is writing to them about having joy primarily because through his predicament, the gospel has been advanced to unbelievers. And secondly, he sees his suffering and his humiliation as sharing in Christ's suffering. And then most importantly, he has joy because he has Christ. Let me tell you this at the outset of the message, you can search for joy for all in all the external things that you can try to attain in your life. But if you don't have Jesus, you will never have true joy. And so the primary circumstance that the church at Philippi is facing is an interesting one, but it's a common one. Their main issue is a financial issue. They are an impoverished church. They don't have a lot of money. They are struggling. And so they had a real legitimate reason to worry. Let me set you free this morning that if you struggle financially and sometimes your finances keep you up at night and you are worried about how you're going to pay for stuff and take care of stuff, let me set you at free and let you know that that is a real legitimate concern that you are free to have. However, it doesn't end there because joy does not come from having more stuff. Joy comes from having Jesus. And so real joy does not depend on changing circumstances, but real joy depends on the only one who does not change, which is God. And so Paul says this, he says this in one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible before we got to our verse in verse 10. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. He said this, and I just wanna mention it to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And guess what will happen at that point? And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Jesus Christ. And so this is important because one of their issues is financial, and he's telling them you can still have joy and you can trust in God, but you got to let him guard your heart and your mind. And he is saying to give, give that to God through prayer, and his peace will guard your mind from doing what? From being irrational just because you don't have enough money. Because oftentimes when we are lacking in finances, we make irrational decisions. And so it's important to guard your heart and mind so that your worship doesn't get replaced with worry. Let me say that again for the people in the back that heard me. It's important to guard your heart and your mind so that your worship doesn't get replaced with worry. And so we all have to at some point figure out how, how, how do we Not just theoretically understand God's peace, but how do we live in the reality of his presence, knowing that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, that he is always with us. And and so peace, this idea of peace, we think is tingly good feelings, but really peace is just an awareness that everything is going to be all right because I got God on my side. And so you might not necessarily feel peace, but when you remind yourself that God is with me, then I can rest assured that although my circumstances have not changed, I don't see them changing, but God is the one that will take care of me. And so we find ourselves at this point in the letter where the apostle thanks them because although they are struggling financially, they didn't let their circumstances dictate their view of money and ministry. And although they had arduous circumstances, it didn't deter their generosity. Here's what he says in verse 10 He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but you lacked the opportunity to show it. He, he's thanking them for, for their support of him while he's in prison. You see, Paul planted the church in Philippi, so this was not a new relationship. They had already, they already had this affinity and this love for the Apostle Paul, and so this was not their first time actually looking out for, for him. He's in Roman, in a Roman prison, and, and let me clear this up. Roman prison is not like our American prison system, system where inmates have access to food, water, clothing, Internet, GED programs, get your college education. I I literally had a cousin that was in prison and he would send me emails. Why do you have an email address, sir? And where do you get a computer from? And so this is not that type of party in a Roman prison. In those days, you only were able to take care of yourself for as much as your family and friends supported you. So if they didn't send you food, water, clothing, or anything else, then you absolutely have nothing and you will be left there to die. And so this church is taking it upon themselves to help their friend in the gospel. And so um, let me let me um, get it, put it in layman terms for you. They, they put money on his books. <laughs> they made sure he had money for commissary. They, they looked out for him to make sure that he had a com- comfortable uh, a living situation while, while, while he's in prison. But, but you ask yourself, why would they why would they do that? Because Paul was in prison for spreading the gospel. They didn't distance themselves from his problems. They knew if one suffered in the body of Christ, we all suffer in the body of Christ. So they don't see somebody else struggling and decide not to do nothing about it. They said, let's get together and let's help our brother in the gospel because the gospel is a reason why he's in there in the first place. We benefited from it. So what do we look like not giving to it? And so... They supported him because they knew and understood the necessity of the gospel and how it had radically changed their own lives. They didn't benefit from the gospel and refused to invest in it. They didn't benefit from it, but refused refused to invest in it. And so they had already supported him. And he said, you I knew you renewed your care for me and that you lacked opportunity to give to me. And so for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't clarify. Historically, we don't know. But for some reason, for a period of time, they stopped sending Paul gifts. I don't know whether he couldn't receive mail in the prison or they just had no way to get it to him uh, from Philippi to Rome. And so for one reason, it stopped. But Paul knew them. He knew the heart of that church. And he knew that their giving was not based upon their lack of love for him. They just had no opportunity. But when the opportunity came back up, they made sure to take care of the apostle. And so how Can a church that is poor, that is struggling, that is shrouded with debt, that has student loan debt, they don't have student loan debt, but we have student loan loan debt, car notes, car insurance, mortgages to pay, behind on bills, having more month than you have money. How is a church like that able to give to God, although their circumstances say otherwise? Because it was by the grace of God that they gave. And so that, that financial trouble, that financial tightness that didn't stop the threat of anxiety and discontentment from rearing this ugly head let me tell you this money will make you have anxiety not having money will keep you up at night you will be worried about how you're going to pay for stuff I know everybody in here is rich and y'all never had a struggle but take it from somebody that has had a struggle that money will make you have anxiety but when you start getting a a good little bit of it it also make you discontent it works both ways. And so Paul is thankful for their financial support. He's thankful. But in that Thanksgiving, he wants to teach them a lesson. And all of us can learn this lesson. And the lesson we didn't learn is how to rightly prioritize and have a proper perspective on giving. And so the first thing you, that you need to have today, I got five things for you. And the first thing that you need is contentment. First thing you need is contentment. Here's what he says in verses 11 through 13. And this is going to blow your mind at some point. 11 through 13. Here's what he says. I don't say this out of need. And I'm like, Paul, but you in prison, you don't have you don't have nothing. You, you need something. But here's what Paul says. I've learned to be content. Notice he said I what I. To be content in whatever circumstances I find myself, I know both how to make do a little. I know how to eat ramen noodles. And I know how to do with a lot. I know how to eat a Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Y'all hungry? <laughs> I know how to make do a little, and I know how to make do it a lot. In, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. Verse 13, I am able to, to do all things through him who gives me strength. Hmm. Essentially what Paul is saying, paraphrase everything, he says, whether well, I got a little or got a lot, I know how to make it do what it do. That's what he said. That's, that's the interpretation in the Greek. I know how to make it do what it do. And so he, he he introduces this idea of contentment. Why would he do that? Because he's playing on language of their day because people studied Greek philosophers and they had this idea of contentment but for them contentment meant this. Contentment meant being self-sufficient and not depending on other people for anything. And so your goal in life was to become content, to have contentment, not to be able to de- depend on anybody for anything. You were self-sufficient. You didn't need anything and anybody. But Paul here is turning that idea on, on his head. He's saying, no, you don't be self-made because that's what they tell you to do in the cause. You're self-made. You're self-made. You pull yourself up. You're a boss. You do it your own self. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're self-made. But that's not the gospel. Because the gospel is you don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you don't have no boots. And so Paul turns it on his head, and, and, and it's not contentment about self-sufficiency. But when you are a, a believer, it is not self-sufficiency, but real contentment is this. Christ sufficiency. It's Christ sufficiency, and so our culture has cornered us and pinned us down into thinking that there are certain things and certain accomplishments that must happen by a certain age. Whether it be a degree, marriage, children, house, certain type of car, career status, job promotion, and all of those things are fine. But when culture puts a time frame on it, we begin to feel that we are somehow failures when we don't meet the expectations. And instead of waiting on God and trusting in him, we move out of his will and start to make rash decisions just because we're trying to live up to the ideals that God never set for us. And so when we don't accomplish those things fast enough, what happens? Deep disappointment sets in and deep discontentment begins to set in. But what Paul wanted for them and hence what God wants for us to understand is this. Christian contentment is about believing and knowing that Christ is enough. That if you never get married, Jesus is enough. That if you never become a millionaire, Jesus is enough. If you never get the job promotion, Jesus is enough. Now hear me with maturity. I'm not saying you don't get those things, and I'm not saying that those things are bad desires. But what I am saying is it does not mean your life is a failure if you don't have all of that by the age of 30. And so here's what we need to understand. More things won't bring more satisfaction. And neither will less stuff, because some people take this to the extreme and they make a vow of poverty when the Bible never called us to make a vow of poverty. And so, Paul says something interesting. He just said, I just rest in the contentment of Jesus. Oh, I just embrace the contentment. Paul says, I learned to be content. That's something that he had to learn. Paul says he learned contentment. W- w- what would he be talking about? I'm, I'm gonna read a couple of scriptures to you. They're not on the screen, but I'm just gonna read them for your hearing pleasure. First Corinthians chapter four, 11 through 12. I, I think this these two scriptures here are going to give us some, some insight. He says up to the present hour. We are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our hands. He just admitted that he is hungry. He's thirsty. He's poorly clothed. He's treated bad. He's homeless and he's still working. So he's working and struggling at the same time. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 25 through 27 says, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cloth- cold and lacking clothing. And so he had to learn through his circumstances how to be content. Contentment does not come in a single crisis. It's something that you have to learn among, along your Christian journey. You're not gonna be content just because you survived one bad season. You're gonna have to survive multiple seasons to learn how to be content with Jesus and Jesus alone and so contentment is not this natural thing for us contentment is not natural the human nature the human part of us will never be satisfied we will always want more and want to achieve more and get more done but those desires for more are not to be filled up but by what you think you need to be filled with it's actually Christ that fills the void that you're trying to fill you think you need more money but what you need is more Jesus and so even when Paul had situations in which, he, in which he had everything, he didn't let that desire for more stuff fool him into thinking that he needed more. He learned that even when seasons are good and I have money left over, I'm still content in Jesus. Contentment protects both rich and poor from greed. Poor people are not immune to greed. You don't believe me. The writer of Proverbs had this say in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 8. Here's what it said in Message Bible. And then he prayed God, I'm asking for two things before I die. Don't refuse me, banish lies from my lips and liars from my presence. Here's this give me enough food to live on, neither too much nor too little. If I'm too full, I might get independent, I might become self sufficient. Saying, God, who needs him? And if I'm poor, I might steal and dishonor the name of God. And so he's trying to find that right balance of contentment. He knows himself that if you give me too much, God, I might trip out. I might stop coming to church. I'm going to be buying stuff. I'm going to be taking our loans. I'm going to be getting houses. I'm going get, get to get a $100,000 four, job. I'm going to get a $450,000 mortgage. I'm going to go crazy. Because he knows how people are. And sometimes God doesn't give us what we're asking for because maybe God is protecting us from ourselves. Here's what I notice about some of the wealthiest people in the world. They give away most of what they have. You notice how wealthy people give away more, but people who are poor try to hold on to everything they have? And it never breaks the cycle of poverty? Because holding on doesn't allow anything else to come in. But you think that that's going to work out for you. That's not the way that works in God's economy. And so contentment says that I'm grateful for what I do have, But if God blesses me big time, I'm satisfied with him enough that my heart won't be stolen away from the giver by his gifts. That if God blesses me the way I've been asking for it, I'm content enough, Jesus, that I'm not going to fall in love with the gift and fall out of love with you. I don't think y'all realize how rich that is. That if we get blessed and if we're not mature enough to handle it. We will fall out of love with the one who gave us the gifts in the first place. And we'll worship what he gave us and not worship him. And so, Paul said, I learned the secret of contentment. Secret of contentment. And so, like back in th- those days, like the false religion and mystics of the day, there was always a secret, a secret passcode, a secret handshake, some secret that no one else could know. It was this mystery thing shrouded in mystery, right? And so Paul is like, I got a secret for you, but the secret that I have for you is actually an open secret that everybody can find out if they would just give, them, give, them, give themselves to Christ Jesus. And here's what the, the, the secret is. Contentment is connected, is related, or, or, or co- connected to your union with Christ. When you are in Christ, you can have contentment. When you are not in Christ, it will be hard for you to be content. That is the secret. That's the secret. When you have Jesus, you actually have everything that you need. Because when you die, I know it sounds cliche, but they're not backing up a U-Haul to the grave site. Let's pull this house on up. Let's pull this mansion on up here. let's, Let's pull this Maserati truck and back it up in case he needs to go somewhere. That's just not what happens. And so I want to read Hebrews 13, 5 says this Hebrews 13 and 5 says this keep your life free from the love of money you know the old folks like to say they, they have it wrong they say money is the root of all evil no money is not the root of all evil the love of money is the root of all evil It's the love of it, the love of it. And here's what he says. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. And so Paul is talking to them about contentment, that you have contentment in Christ Jesus. And then verse 13, one of the most quoted scriptures in all of Christianity and all of the world, even by unbelievers. Verse 13, I'm able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Everybody say that. Everybody knows that. You ready to take, take the test? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> About to strap up and go play a football game? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. About to go through a hard day at work? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use this verse and we take it out of content, context. And now in context, we realize that this verse has nothing to do with you scoring a touchdown, but everything to do with your contentment in material possessions. And so when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, what he's saying is God sustains me and gives me strength through all circumstances. You can be confident that you will be divinely strengthened to do whatever God calls you to do. It does not mean that you'll do whatever you want to do. It means if God leads you to make a sacrifice or do something to invest in or advance his message, he will strengthen you to do his will, not yours. I love what what the the CSB Bible editor's note says And, and Paul talking about his attitude toward material possessions. It says this. Paul is trying to teach them how to maintain spiritual equilibrium in the midst of fluctuating financial circumstances. Let me say that again. He's trying to teach them how to maintain spiritual equilibrium in the midst of fluctuating financial circumstances. Just because you don't have enough money doesn't mean your spiritual life with God needs to fall off. And so, number one is contentment. He wanted them to learn that. The second thing is that he wants to talk to them about partnership. Verses 14 through 16. Point number two is partnership. Verses 14 through 16. It says this: still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. And so Paul uses these Macedonian churches, He always talks about the Macedonian churches, and he uses them as an example. I want to point out to you 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. It says this, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability, even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hope. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. What is he talk- Why is he always talking about these Macedonian churches? Hmm. Because Macedonia is a district. And notice he doesn't write a letter to the church at Macedonia. Why is that? So when he's talking about the Macedonian churches, who is he talking about? He's talking about the church at Philippi. They are in the district of Macedonia. That's like if someone said, those churches in Orange County, but they were particularly talking about our church. And so he's talking about the Philippian church when he references these Macedonian churches. And so Paul, when he was at Philippi, he left and went and started another church 100 miles away in Thessalonica. And so this is 10 years prior that he does this, that we're reading this letter. He's referencing something to them that happened 10 years prior while they were a young church. When they just had got started, they saw it as their responsibility to help Paul plant other churches. How is a church that is just getting started, understands and believes and invests in the mission of the gospel going forward? You mean to tell me they weren't 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, 100 years old? It wasn't that they had several pastors over several years, that that this baby church somehow was generous enough to believe and understand and, and have the maturity and the audacity to support gospel mission. That they looked at their money as not their own, but they looked at their money first as belonging to God and secondly being used to support gospel mission. How is that? Maybe it's because they were a mature church that they didn't use the excuse of being young and broke as a reason not to give. So here's what he said about him in 2 Corinthians 11 and 9. Here's what he said about him again. He said, when I was present with you, he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's writing them a letter. He says, when I was present with you and in need, I didn't burden you. I asked y'all to Corinth for nothing since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So even when Paul is not with them, they are still giving. And why is this interesting for us to look at this Corinthian church? Because Corinth was a a prosperous town. It was like New York meets LA meets Las Vegas. Everybody went to Corinth to do business. And so Corinth had a bunch of successful people. But even in that big, successful, well-educated, well-to-do church, they didn't have the maturity to understand that they needed to support the gospel. And here you have this little church in this poor area with people that don't have a lot of money giving all that they have because they believed in the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what they understood. They understood the connection between ministry and money. And they knew that if we are not giving to the gospel ministry, we actually have no part in it. Don't tell me you benefit from something that you don't invest in. And, And so what we've done in our Western culture Is that we've created consumer Christianity and so we treat churches like the shopping mall and so we pick churches based on what appeases us and we act like consumers not understanding that if you're saved you're not a consumer it's a family business and if you aren't giving to it then are you really a part of the family you're more like a consumer not a family member and so what was happening? Some of them were joined the benefits of ministry and pastoral care and all of the amenities. And they weren't taking part in taking the responsibility of giving. And so when a Christian is a part of a local church and they receive the benefits of ministry like sound teaching, community, accountability, they have privilege and responsibility to support the mission of the gospel. And so Paul is loving this and he has joy because they had point number three and point number three is this. They had fruitfulness. They had fruitfulness. Here's what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Paul is like, I appreciate y'all gift, but that's not really what I'm seeking. Christ is going to take care of me. I don't seek the gift, but here's what I really seek in verse 17. I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. If we're giving money away, how, how, how how are we profiting from that? How am I benefiting from something if I'm giving it away? Because when you give money to God, you're not giving it away. You're investing it in the kingdom. That better be Jesus. I'm just kidding. This is a joke. promise. And so Paul had a right to receive money from the gospel. He had a right. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I won't read that. But if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it explains to you why Paul had a right as a preacher of the gospel to get paid for doing his work. But Paul says, because I don't want to get things twisted and I don't want to get misconstrued, I'm not asking anybody for money. If you support me, great. Uh -uh, But if you don't, that's fine, too. But I appreciate seeing that you understand the, the, the necessity and the significance of the gospel that you are willing to sacrifice, even though I'm not asking you to. What would it be like if we never took an offering in this church? I went to this church. I think I told you the story before. It's a church in Orlando on the west side. I went to this church and uh, they don't even take up an offering during service. I said, how does how that work? <laughs> how how that supposed, supposed to work? What, 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 how am I going to try this? And they put it they put kiosks in out in the lobby. And they have created such a culture that even without mentioning money, the people support the mission because they know how to give. I'm going to try that one Sunday. I'm going to try it one Sunday. It won't be this Sunday. I'm going to muster up enough faith in y'all that one Sunday I'm not going to take up an offering. But you know what? That'll be an indication of people who really understand what they've benefited from. No, I'm not talking about benefiting from me from my preaching. I'm talking about benefiting from being saved, by having peace, by having joy by having Jesus, by having eternal salvation and eternal security. That's what you benefit from, that you were spiritually dead, but God saw fit and he loved you enough before you even got here to save you and bring you into the marvelous life. And so now you benefit from it, but you still walk out the door and won't give anything. And that shows to me that somebody does not understand the necessity of mission and money. And so for them to give, this is evidence of of generous giving. And here's the thing. One of the other things that he mentioned to them in the beginning of his letter was that he was working diligently for their progress in joy. And so Christianity is not about getting to a certain point and seemingly arriving at this apex. I'm a super Christian. I've made it. There's no more for me to go. This is a journey throughout our our entire lives. And so here's what we do. Financially speaking, hear this and don't get offended. Here's what we do. Financially speaking, we set a barometer of 10 percent to get to. I'm going to pay my tithe. One day I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay my tithe. And if you already pay yourself, I pay my. I'm, I'm at 10. percent I'm good. I'm good. I'm great. And then for, for those that don't, we're being honest because the average Christian pays about 3.5 percent of their income to the church. They don't give a 10. Majority of Christians. But for those that, I, boy, if I get, if I could just get, to, boy, I'm gonna get to that 10 percent. Soon as I get that job promotion, I'm gonna get to that 10 percent. Not knowing that once you get the job promotion, you're gonna have the same habits that you did when you were poor. And so we we get to the 10%. All right, this is my Sunday. I've been been talking about it. I've been rolling my eyes. I've been putting my finger up like I got to use the bathroom every time they take up an offering. I've been doing all of that wonderful stuff. But now I'm ready. I'm ready. We get there. And we get the envelope, and we put it in. And we spike it in the container like we just scored a touchdown. And we celebrate. Woo, 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 woo. I gave my tithe. And five years later, Ooh, I gave my tithe. But if the idea of Christianity is Christ-like conformity and that we can never rest on our laurels, that if we want to be more patient, that if we want to be more kind, that if we want to be more long-suffering, that we want to exhibit more fruit of the Spirit and we want to grow in Christianity, why is it that the only area of growth that we don't want in Christianity is for our finances to grow? I want to grow in my relationships. But do you want to grow in generosity? And so we set this barometer of 10%. And I ain't, I ain't shooting out on 10%. If you give a tithe, that's fine. That's great. But my question then becomes, if you're growing and maturing as a Christian, shouldn't you mature and grow in your giving? And so your goal should be to work in such a way and steward your money in such a way that you don't give in church like you're giving to a mob boss named Paulie Knuckles that if you don't give your tithe, he's going to take your kneecaps out with a baseball bat and put you in a trunk. But that's how we treat God. And we don't give from a posture of love. We give from a posture of let me get God off my back. Let me get him off my back. And so people kids just went back to school recently, I think. Right. And I'm pretty sure plenty of parents who have children in pre-K and kindergarten got these beautiful paintings that their kids made at school (laughs) of them. And you know what? The parents are gonna get it. And the parents are gonna be like, oh, this is so wonderful. This is so cute. Little Johnny got us a, oh my God, this is a wonderful, th- th- did you make, I made this for you, mommy. I made this for you, daddy. And they put it on the refrigerator. And they celebrate it because the baby put his time, effort, energy into creating something and giving something beautiful to his parents. That same kid grows up and gets to 10th grade. And he brings that same stupid painting. and gives it to his parents and his parents are going to have a different attitude about that because this is what you gave me 10 years ago when you were a child but you in 10th grade and you still painting this way you couldn't use pro presenter or you couldn't use an illustrator you couldn't use some kind of adobe program to make me something nicer you couldn't color in lines because the expectation changes when the more mature you are and some of us are still bringing God this stupid little pain outside of the lines, which was cute in the beginning, but now you're still expecting God to be proud and put it on the refrigerator. And you think when you give your little 10% that you've been giving for 10 years, God is putting that on the refrigerator in heaven. And he's not, because he expects more from you, because you should be more mature. Yeah. And so we argue about gross and net. Do I gross or do I get my gross or do I get my net? Gross or net? Gross or net? Gross or net? Which one is it? Gross or net? And what you're communicating subconsciously is this. God, what is the least that I can do so that I can feel like you won't get me? And so the idea has to be that we give to God like a loving he's a loving father and we have a real relationship with him and I don't know anybody that loves and admires somebody that when they give them a gift they don't give them their best because it's a reflection of how you feel about that person which leads me to my fourth point I'm almost done and that our giving is worship our giving is worship Here's what he says in verse 18. But I have received everything in full and I have abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Sacrificial giving pleases God. There's a story in the Bible about two brothers named Cain and Abel. And here's what happens in Genesis chapter four. Later, she gave birth to his brother. And named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Here's what happened. Abel also brought a gift. But here's what Abel's gift looked like. The best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. And here's what happened. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. But he did not accept Cain and his gift. Why is it that God both gave God a gift? One God accepted. One God did not. So that leads me to believe that every gift is not acceptable. Just because you give bare minimum doesn't mean that God is accepting it. And our goal ain't to just give. Our goal is to please God. And God rejects one person's gift and he accepts the other's gift. Why? Because one gave his best. One gave his best. We don't have to give, we get to give. We give because we are saved, not in order to be saved. We give because Jesus himself is a giver. And point number five, and I'm done and out of your way, and to everybody that is faithful in giving, everybody that has made a sacrifice, everybody that has given when you didn't have anything, everybody that had to make a conscious decision, am I going to give to God or am I going to pay my rent? Am I going to give to God or pay my car? No. Am I going to give to God or am I going to make a sacrifice and cut something else out? I want to give you this. Here's what he says in verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is financial. I don't care however you want to toss it. It is a financial promise that God says that those that give sacrificially, he will supply your needs. Notice he didn't say I'll supply your wants. But there's not a need that you have that I won't take care of. There's not a day that you as my child will not go without food. There is not a day as my child, as long as you are with me, that you won't have the bare essentials of life. You may not have everything that you want, but you will have everything that you need. And he says, I promise that I will supply according not to not to your wants, but to your needs. And I'm not taking from you. I'm taking from me. And I have an endless supply. You don't have more needs than God has resources. What is our ultimate Our ultimate sign of giving them done is that I think about the life of Jesus in Jesus' ministry from the age of 30 to 33. You know, Jesus started healing and casting out demons and healing bodies and raising people to life. He started early but you realize that he could have just said you know what i did 2 years i did 2 years of awesome ministry <laughs> to all these people i'm having big fish fries outside i'm feeding everybody i'm healing children i'm healing women with issues of blood i'm, I'm casting out demons I'm meeting women who have promiscuous lifestyles at, 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 at a well, and I'm introducing her to life and giving her eternal life in real water in a way that she will never be thirsty again. I, I can chill out. It's two years in the game. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. I, 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 I reached the apex. But Jesus was not finished until he gave everything that he had. And I don't want you hearing that and saying you are giving everything that you got. I'm not telling you to empty out your, your purse. I'm not. This is not a shakedown. But what I am saying to you is this, that when you give to God, it's not just something that you throw and toss in a box or container, but that your giving is worship. And when you give to God, you can trust in his provision that he will take care of you. Your money is about more than you, but your money is also about God's mission. Every dollar, as Pastor Doug says, every dollar is mission ammunition. What could we do if everybody got on board? How many lives could we really change? What could we actually do in our community? If we really all said, you know what, I I play a role in this family business. That God saved me. And he didn't just save parts of me, he saved all of me. And so this morning, my prayer for you is that we will create a culture in our church, that we will be a culture of givers, that, that that would just be who we are, that we will be generous people, that if we saw a brother or sister in need, we wouldn't say, that's their problem, I'm praying for them. But sometimes what people need is not just your prayers, people need your provision. And all of us can look back over our lives and see seasons where we struggle. Well, maybe you're in that season now, but God is still taking care of you. So what do I do with that? I don't shoot for a bare minimum that I can give to God. I say, God, I'm making this sacrifice and trusting in you. My my goal, God, is to never stop growing, and that includes in my finances. And so, Lord, I want to give you my whole heart and everything that I have.